0: It seems that every year at this time, our society takes on a new atmosphere, a new ambiance begins to occur. We're coming to a time in which we will remember the birth of Christ, which is an event that will compel worship. And as we prepare for that, I want to come step back from Colossians and, and look upon Christ that indeed we may worship him. Because I think one of the most important questions to ask is not who am I, but who is Christ? There are certain texts in scripture that invoke a time of meditation, and they invite us to worship. They are passages of scripture that require a response, that upon reading them we cannot remain indifferent to them. The first verse of the Gospel of John is one of those texts. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, and I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, Introduction Etiquette, a Proper Presentation of Christ. And I ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You may be seated. <clears throat> there was a startup company with a bright concept But that company had been oscillating between continuation and collapse. When they finally connected with another business, they thought this business might help them endure. And so after going back and forth for several weeks, the manager of the startup was able to secure a meeting with key executives. Based on some studies, those executives had decided and were trying to contemplate how to implement a new program that they thought would be better. And the new startup company seemed to have the precise way to help them. And so through assistance, they arranged for the presentation to occur in the next few weeks. And upon arrival, the manager and his assistants were ushered into a large conference room. And they were invited to share, indeed, what they had to offer from their company. They put everything into that presentation. By all accounts, it was a brilliant presentation and laid out everything that needed to be done. Afterwards, those present thanked the manager and his assistants for coming and said they would share what they learned with the company executives. This surprised them because they thought they were presenting to those executives. It turns out these were only department heads, department heads who really had no knowledge of what the executives had planned. They had no anticipation of what was coming down. So each had failed to properly introduce themselves. Had the management known who was present at the meeting, they probably would have shifted their focus, or they would have shared their communication differently. Years later, managers from both groups would come together at a different place at a different time, and upon conversation learned, indeed, their partnership probably would have been mutually beneficial. But the deal was lost, and ultimately the business was lost because there was a lack of a proper introduction. There is such a thing as introduction etiquette. There are rules that guide how people are introduced to one another. The etiquette identifies who a person is and what they do, so that each is informed of the relationship to one another. Before a business deal, a proper introduction identifies who the key players are and also influence influence they will have on the decisions to be made in a relationship a proper introduction identifies one another and then establishes a relationship sometimes through a common bond for the past three weeks we have spent the time in lord's word and we discussed the message and the motivation that we are to proclaim from first corinthians chapter 1 And then we spent two weeks looking upon a believer's testimony of proclamation from Colossians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. What those texts have in common is they speak of the Christian command to introduce Christ to the world. By entering into the Gospel of John this morning, I want to properly introduce us to Christ First, it makes sense that if we're going to introduce others to Christ, then we should know who he is. But more importantly, as we enjoy our daily walk, it would seem reasonable that we should know the very one who exercises the most influence over our lives. As both author of life and the one who maintains it, the single most important person for us to know is Jesus Christ. And so we look at the Gospel of John. While other Gospels give a physical introduction, John gives a theological introduction. And this seems to serve a greater purpose. So that before launching into Christ's ministry, before launching into an explanation of what Christ does, he begins to talk about who Christ is. Before talking about Christ's influence in the world, he makes the case for why Christ can make that influence. And so to understand what Christ has done, we must understand who Christ is. And so John seems to follow these rules of introduction etiquette and introduces the world to Christ. I want you to note first the identity of Christ. Answering the question, who are you? The first step of introduction etiquette is to identify the name and the title of those being introduced. We often say this is Mr. and Mrs. Whoever or Dr. So-and-so. This name and this title distinguish that person from anybody else that might be around at that moment. It identifies that person. It sets them apart from anybody else. In introducing the world to Jesus, John writes, In the beginning was the Word and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word acts both as a title and a name for Christ, and thus the word identifies both who Christ is and what he does. John displays a masterful use of language in our text. His ambition in writing this account about the life of Jesus Christ is to write to a broad audience to introduce the world to Christ, as I said. He's not writing only to the Jews of the first century or the Americans of the 21st century. He's writing a timeless account of Jesus for all people, for all eras. <clears throat> Therefore, his decision here to refer to Christ as a word, it's an intelligent use of words. He chooses a concept that people of all background would have understood. For the Stoics, the the word was a divine principle that created order. For the Greeks in general, the word was something similar. It was seen as something abstract, like reason or logic, but once again, something that provides order to the world. The Greek philosopher Philo, he he was a little more abstract, but at one point, he alludes to it being the ideal man who brings order. Each of those beliefs is born out of a philosophy from, from a man by the name of Heraclitus, a philosopher from, from Ephesus who lived 2,600 years ago. It was Heraclitus who first said, you can't step into the same river twice. The concept was the river's always flowing, it's always changing, meaning that really the only thing that stays the same is that everything changes. But that issue then compels this question, if everything changes, why is the world not in perpetual chaos? Why is it not always falling apart? And the answer provided by Heraclitus is that that change must not be random. It must be ordered by something. What orders the world? We know from Colossians 117 that it's Jesus Christ. But Heraclitus proposed that it was some sort of divine reason or word that held the world together. And so for the Gentiles, the word was something that maintained order. Plato once wrote, It may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. And indeed, that's what we see in our text, everything made plain plain. But if John's writing to all audiences and he cannot answer for the Gentiles only, he must address the Jews as well. And for the Jews, the word referred to God's wisdom and God's power on display. To this, Paul writes in our message from 1 Corinthians several weeks ago that Christ is the power and wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 124. But John responds to all of these views and essentially saying, yes, there is a divine word, a word that creates order, a word that is the power and wisdom of God that will bring order to the world. But that word is a person and his name is Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus Christ is the word because after introducing the word, the rest of the gospel of John goes into the life and ministry of Christ that is the focus of his entire writing but if you want something more direct revelation 19:3 also written by john it declares it more explicitly saying he christ is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of god the word of god is an agent of god it is the means by which god will bring everything to fruition Jesus then, as that word is effective, accomplishing the will of God, we see this first at creation, noting what the psalmist says in Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. That is, as God willed or God commanded creation to come into being, Jesus was the agent that made it come into being. He was a means for accomplishing God's will. As the Word of God, Jesus was the effective agent in many aspects of God's work. It was He who brought forth and ratified the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 15 1. Jeremiah 1 2 indicates that it is the Word of God who declares the message to the prophets, for the prophets then to declare. It was Jesus who conveyed to the prophets God's punishment and God's promises. It was Jesus as the word of God who brought forth the Ten Commandments in Exodus 24. And it was he who imparted the presence of God to the people. You see this in 1 Kings 6, 11 through 13. Jesus Christ brings to fruition the work of God to provide order to creation. And so here's something for us to think about. If the word is effective able to bring order to all of creation, then that same word is effective in your life and mine. And this is actually where Christian obedience becomes important. God establishes order by his word, by using it to issue instructions and commandments. They're meant as regulations. And those regulations do what? They bring order to chaos. And so obedience is not just bowing down to some demanding individual. Obedience to the word of God is bringing order to our lives. And thus it is a means for us to experience the grace of God. To those who are struggling, to those who are suffering, those who are shifting in chaos, the word of God is powerful and effective, able to give structure to life, it makes sense, how senseless, and brings reason to the unreasonable. This is the identity of Christ. As John continues to introduce Christ, he answers a second question. The second question that most people would have upon meeting somebody new. And that is, where are you from? He writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. As if to highlight the importance of that point, it's repeated a second time in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. And so I want you to know second, the centrality of Christ, uh, sorry, the eternality of Christ. The eternality of Christ. <clears throat> Before creation was, Christ was. And when creation ceases, Christ will still continue. He will not cease. He is everlasting from everlasting. As Athanasius wrote in one set of Christ, there was never a time when he was not. We learn first that the word was with God. At this point, that means that the word is somebody different than God, specifically God the Father. So there's some sort of relationship, though, between the two. We have God the Father, and we have the Word, and and somehow they've existed together. To be with someone is to be in the presence of that person. There's no letter, there's no telephone call. In today's age, there's no Zoom call. It's Christ who sat face-to-face with God, engaged in conversation, or as one commentator calls it, intellectual discourse with one another. Jesus gives us a picture of this relationship in his prayer in John chapter 17 when he prays and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He then goes on to say in verse 24 father I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The relationship between the two, between God the Father and God the Son, is unique in that they are never separate. They are always together. If both God the Father and God the Son are omnipresent, meaning they are present everywhere at all times, then they can never be separated from one another's presence. But look at our text And look at that word, was. We have multiple grammar lessons this morning. The first being that that word in our text, the word was, is in the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense provides a unique role in language. It captures something from the past that is still going on today, indicating that it still continues. It'd be like me saying, I was born Robert Zink. Indeed, in the past, I was born and that was my name, but that's still my name. That is still who I am. It started in the past. It continues today. And so in the same way, Christ was with God. He was with God then. He is with God now. And he will always be with God. With that in mind, when it says, in the beginning was the word, it can't merely mean the beginning of creation. It must refer to a time further back. And we see that actually. In the text I just read, John 5, 5, 17, 24, you loved me before the foundation of the world. When the Lord sent out Moses, and Moses was hesitant, asking why would people believe him? The Lord says to Moses, I am who I am. And they said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That is to say that the self existent one, the one who has always existed and who will always exist. That is who God is. And God, I am, is the one who sent Moses. Jesus makes the same claim for himself, though, in John eight fifty-eight, saying, Before Abraham was, I am. The life of Christ did not begin at the manger, so many confuse it. Christ is eternal. And so, what happens when you combine Christ's eternality with his presence with God? He becomes a very reliable witness. I'm only as reliable as my relationship with God. I can only speak on behalf of anybody as much as I know that person. We think about someone who writes a biography on a president, as an example their biography is only as reliable as much as they know who that president is and know about that president. If the author can't spend time with the president because he's passed away or something, then they do research, and they use other sources. And the more research and the more direct those sources are, the more they begin to understand who that president is. But in some cases, we have living presidents who then authorize somebody to write a biography on them. And so what they do is they spend time together asking and answering questions, determining what to include and what not to include. They spend hours upon hours together. If they spent but five minutes together, the testimony, the, the biography wouldn't be very reliable. But the more they spend time conversing, the more they have time to ensure that everything is accurate, as it should be. That's why I say I'm only as reliable as my relationship to God. The text tells us, the text of John, it says that Christ was with God. And he's always been with God. Nobody has known God as long as Christ has. And nobody has known God in the same way that Christ has. This gives Christ an authority that nobody else has. So that when he speaks, he does so with full knowledge of God and God's will. This is why the Christian life is built upon Christ. If we want to know God, we only need to know Christ. If we want to know the Lord's will and be in the Lord's will, we only need to seek after Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We can trust that to be the case because he knows the Father. There doesn't need to be many ways to God, as so many people proclaim in the world today, because Christ is sufficient here. We don't need any other way. We only need to know Christ. And so we see the eternality of Christ. In addition to knowing who a person is, the third aspect of introduction etiquette is to reveal what a person does. And so I want you to note third the deity of christ john answers here the question what do you do or or, what is your job and he answers that by saying the word was god second part of the nicene creed and AD 325 reads we believe in one lord jesus christ the only son of god eternally begotten of the father God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial to the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. And the text goes on. The council of Nicaea convened to settle a dispute about the deity of Christ. A a dispute that really began a century prior to their meeting in 325. And it was influenced by the teaching of a man by the name of Arius. And Arius stipulated that Christ was a created being. And therefore, he was a lesser being than God. The deity of Christ, that Christ is God, has long been a point of attack for those who oppose Christianity. Because it's a a common question, I think it's worth parking ourselves for a moment here on this text to note how this verse is is misused to perpetuate that idea that Christ is not God. If we look at verse 1, it says that the word was with God. That tells us there's two individuals present. One must be God, and the other must be the one with God, the word. We know that God refers to God the Father here. So the one with him the Word must be somebody else. But then this next portion of the text, it says the Word was God. So how do you have two people, but now you're almost saying they're the same thing? You have to account for two people somehow, and to do this, some will say that Christ was simply a God, and they will use this verse to assert that. Anyone who says that, I will tell you, is either willfully trying to mislead people were they're ignorant of the Greek text, which is not uncommon. Most of us are ignorant of the Greek text. That's why we seek out help from others, because we don't know Greek. The original text in Greek reads, God, the word was. First off, that word God is in the emphatic position. It's meant to emphasize this. When we say the word was God, we focus on the word. But by putting God there, The text, John, is trying to draw our attention to the fact that God was the word. It's emphasizing God, the deity aspect. And so to get technical for you, it is inappropriate to insert an indefinite article, the word A, A God, before that. I am not going to get into all the rules and regulations. If you want to talk about it with me afterwards, I can explain it but it has to deal with what is the subject and what is the predicate of the, ver- of the sentence. So way back into third grade English. <laughs> Some will then argue that, okay, but it doesn't say the God there either. It doesn't have a definite article. That's why they choose to put a God. But what happens if John writes the word was the God? you just lost that distinction that John was so trying to preserve. It removes that distinction between the two persons of the Trinity. And so precise wording here is to show that there are two people present, God the Son and God the Father, and both are equally God. I spend time there because that is a common attack and we need to know how to defend it. It's a mistranslation of the text. But it's not just this text that tells us that Christ is God. This is confirmed elsewhere. We don't need to rely on this to say that Jesus Christ was God. The Word was God. Paul writes that in Christ the fullness of God dwells, in Colossians chapter 1. Christ himself said, the Father and I are one, in John 10.30. Jesus Christ is neither inferior nor superior to God the Father. He is equal with God. And so, once again, we see this concept that to know God, we only need to know Christ. He says the same thing to Philip in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, it begins with Christ explaining that at some point he's going to have to go away. And he's going there to prepare a place for his disciples. And he tells them, and you know the way to where I'm going. But Thomas responds back and says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And then Philip says to Jesus, if you just show us the Father, that will be enough. And then Jesus responds in John fourteen nine through 11. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I have, that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. And so this is Christ claiming equality with God. The deity of Christ is important for two reasons. First, it means that only Christ can satisfy God. What do I mean by that? Because if he is God, because he is divine, Christ is without sin. And so Christ is the only one able to satisfy God's requirements for sin's penalty. To atone for sin, which is an offense to God. The shedding of innocent blood is required. And so in their sinful state, man cannot please God. And so Christ becomes that sinless sacrifice by dying on the cross. And so only Christ can satisfy God. At the same time, only Christ can satisfy us. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-six 26 says, The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him, those who seek God, shall praise the Lord. How are we able to seek God? First, because Christ made it possible through that sacrifice we just talked about. But think about this, if, that each of us was created to be satisfied by nothing less than God. He is what our soul was designed to long after, and only in him will our souls be satisfied. As God we only find full satisfaction in him. So then with that understanding look at Psalm one hundred seven nine, which stipulates for he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And then think about what Jesus said in John six thirty five. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Because Christ is God, Christ is able to satisfy the human soul. And so for those who find themselves longing for peace, longing for comfort, or whatever it may be, they only need to satisfy their longing for Christ first. This is the deity of Christ. After answering those basic questions, usually what happens in a conversation is there tends to be a lull or a pause and the conversation we've answered who are you where are you from what do you do and and after that there sends to be this dead space this dead air and introduction etiquette requires that the person making the introductions fills that gap and so john fills that void in conversation by answering what are some of christ's qualifications what are some of christ's key works and he answers by telling us of Christ's participation in creation. Verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so I want you to know, forth, the duty of Christ. The duty of Christ. As the agent who makes God's will come to fruition, Jesus participates at the Lord's most significant acts in creation. First, we see it in creation. Colossians 1.16 states, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Eight times in Genesis, the creation account of Genesis 1, it says, God said, And with each act, the Lord simply declares, Let there be... And it was so. Verse 1, is Jesus is the Word, now impacts how we read all of Scripture. When we look at John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We now have to view all of Scripture through that lens. And so with the inclusion of John's writing, we now understand that as the Word, Christ was the one who made all things according to God's will. Hebrews 1, 2 affirms this, saying, through Christ, God created all things. Christ's participation in creation is described all the way back in Proverbs. Once again, we we go back to our message from 1 Corinthians 1 on November 5th, and we remember that Christ is God's wisdom. And now we look at Proverbs 3, 19. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established heavens. But now jump to chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. And we read this. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned the sea its limit. So that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. And so now we see Christ present at creation, even mentioned in Proverbs. But the work of Christ was not only to consummate creation, but to con- ensure the continuation of creation. That text in Colossians one sixteen goes on into verse 17 Not only to say that all things were created through Christ, but it also says in him all things hold together. At the identity of Christ as a word, we learn that Christ's role is to bring order to creation. He holds all things together. And it's by creating that order that Christ ensures the continuation of creation, In science, the the delicate balance between existence and non-existence is often a fascinating topic. It becomes a discussion for so many people. Think about even the placement of the earth. and, And we often say that it's amazing to think that if it were a bit further away or a bit closer, it wouldn't be able to sustain life because it would be too cold or too hot. How is that balance achieved? By the order created by God and maintained by the word. By Christ. By the order of Christ, not even a single molecule is going to go wayward. Lastly, incidental to creation and the continuation of creation is Christ's work at crucifixion. Jesus Christ is the one who not only gives physical life, but eternal life, spiritual life. After creation comes condemnation. Humanity falls into sin. Psalm 29.3 tells us that by his word, God issues judgment. By Christ, he will bring judgment. Man stands condemned, destined for eternal punishment. But then Psalm 107.20 then shares that deliverance also comes by God's word. We know that to be the case because Christ brought deliverance. And then look at Isaiah 55.10-11. through For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and the bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Notice how our understanding of Christ as a word now transforms our understanding of this word of this verse, the word of God, what God says, surely won't return void. But it's only because Christ, the word, is the effective agent of that. And so by now what we see is this verse is a description of the salvation offered by the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. There is no separation between the will of God and the work of Christ Christ says that all that he does, Christ does also. All that the God the Father does, Christ does. He does nothing apart from God. And so C.K. Barrett writes that the works of Christ are the works of God. Anything less is blasphemy. Because where Christ is denied, God is denied. When Christ is rightly presented, he is given his rightful place in creation. This is because an introduction done according to proper etiquette, an introduction of Christ, it will answer the basic questions. Who is Christ? Where is Christ from? What has Christ done? If those questions are answered rightly, a proper introduction of Him highlights Christ's relevance to our lives by emphasizing how Christ is the fulfillment of our human needs. John notes first the identity of Christ. He is the agent of the Lord's will. And so he is effective. He's not effective, not just globally, but individually in your life and mine. And then John says the word was with God and is God, highlighting the eternality and the deity of Christ. The combination of those two characteristics gives Christ this greater perspective than what we would have. We often say that hindsight is twenty-twenty, But Christ sees not only the past, but also the present and the future. As an <clears throat> eternal God, he, he knows the plan in its entirety. That means that when he acts in our lives in an effective way, he does so with complete knowledge of what is trying to be accomplished. And if we understand that, it should cause us to trust him more. And finally, John tells us that what Christ does. He notes his duty. He brought creation into existence, and now he holds it all together. He not only holds the cosmos together, but he holds our lives together. My life and everyone else's life, we exist because of him. Nobody else can do that. Our parents, our spouse, pastor, elders. It's Christ that does that and so it's Christ that we must rely on knowing Christ causes us to depend upon him and so the most important question you and I have to answer is not who am I it is who is Christ let's pray our father god we have this great revelation before us your word and father we know that your word is truth And in your word, you revealed the word, your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. And Father, we come before you with great praise and adoration, because as we look upon who the word is, we see this significance, and we see the interplay of your entire plan, Lord. And indeed, what it reveals is that there's not a detail left to chance. It is all under your authority. And so, Lord, we give you great praise for that. Father, as we see the work that you've done through Christ, Lord, I, I pray that that would cause us to see your work in our lives and cause us to trust you and to rely upon you more, Lord. Father, we're grateful that indeed you've already provided a way through salvation. Even that was a, a great work, work through your word, Lord. And so, Father, may that incline our hearts towards you more. May we be more committed to you every day because of that. We're so grateful that we can look upon this. And as we begin to think more and more about the birth of your son, Lord, may it cause us to meditate upon your truth and to love you more and more. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.